Well, some of you will be terribly surprised to find out we're still in John chapter 8. <clears throat> I think there have been 54 messages so far in the book of John. 56, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to start skipping along a little faster. Otherwise, we'll never get done. However, in the last three or four weeks, we've talked about John chapter 8 because in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, he was teaching in the temple, and his enemies brought a woman not only accused of adultery, but caught in the act of adultery, and they wanted her executed. And they thought they could trap Jesus. Well, he dismissed the accusers by saying, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, and they all left. Uh, he told the, the, and the, the woman waited, seeing him as her judge, but in doing so, she met him as her savior because he extended grace to her rather than judgment. Uh, but to the people who were left, he said, that he was the light of the world. And the Pharisees really had a problem with that, and there was some argument. And today we're going to see the result of that. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and blessing as we approach your word. We understand that apart from your Holy Spirit, we do not understand your word. It's just a closed book to anybody that isn't under the direct control of the Holy Spirit. We we can read, we can learn, we can try, but the fact is it's so, so limited in terms of what we're going to get out of it apart from your guidance. Uh, that's why it's a closed book to unbelievers is they've closed their eyes to your light and therefore they've closed their eyes to the light of your word. We ask that this morning our eyes and our hearts will be open to the light of your word and that we'll learn to walk with you in, in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so uh, last week he had warned the the Pharisees who were still arguing with him that uh, he says, until, until I'm lifted up, in other words, he's talking about the crucifixion. He says, until you've lifted up the Son of Man, he says, you're not going to even know who I am. And once you do, you'll seek me, but you won't find me. He says, you're going to die in your sins. Why? Because they were rejecting the light. They were closing their hearts to him. They wouldn't even consider the possibility that the person who was talking to them was the Messiah that they'd been preaching for thousands of years and that they'd been looking forward to for thousands of years. Uh, and in verse 30, we see the end result of that. <clears throat> it says that when he had said these things, and as he spoke these words, verse 30, many believed on him. So of the, you remember he was in the temple, he was teaching there. They, these enemies came, but they left. Amongst the people that were left, there were still Pharisees and scribes and so forth. But there were still a lot of people that had come there to hear him teach. And, and that's what it said back in chapter 8, verse 1, that all these people came back to hear him teach again. So there were some receptive people there. And the result of what he told the Pharisees and the scribes is that some of the rest of them actually became believers at that moment. <clears throat> so there's an important change that happens right there because in verse 31, after verse 30, where it says, as he spoke these words, many believed on him, he shifted who he was talking to. It says that Jesus was no longer speaking to unbelievers. Verse 31 says, then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him. He's changed his, his audience. He was speaking to a general audience that included believers and unbelievers. Now he's talking to the believers. 
to those who had just been born again from our perspective. I'm not sure that born again was yet a thing. I think that started after his death, but that that's effectively where they were. They had pl been placed into his kingdom <clears throat> by faith. It says, Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. <clears throat> now, over the last 20 years here, I've taught many times on the difference between our position in Christ and our condition as believers. Our position, which is in Christ, and our condition in Christ. Uh, I've used Noah as an example, that when God closed the door, Noah and his family were in the ark. Once the rain fell, it really became important that they were in the ark as opposed to outside, because everybody outside died and everybody inside lived. His position was perfect. He was in God's completely in God's care and control. How does how is this condition? Well, honestly, we don't know. God didn't tell us. So let's see. He's never been on a boat before, and now he's on rolling big ship. I'll bet he might have got seasick sometime during the next year and 17 days, because that's how long he was on that boat. Um, let's see. There are thousands of animals aboard. I've been around lots of animals. Uh, I got a feeling he got tired of the smell after a while. You see, his condition might have varied day by day. There might have been days when he felt fine. There might have been days when he was thinking, let me out of here. But he knew that the real issue was his position. His position was secure. His position was perfect. Your position from the moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior has been, quote, in Christ, end quote. Why is that important? Because your, your location is either in Christ or outside him, just like Noah's position was either inside the ark or outside the ark. Sometimes that really matters. <clears throat> when God said it was time to get off, Noah could get out of the ark. But he was still, his position was perfect as a believer. He was in Christ. Okay. And that's what God has done down through the ages, is that believers have been placed into Christ. Today we have a special thing, that we're not only in Christ, we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the, what's going to be called the bride of Christ once the body is completed. <clears throat> so these people... Their position changed in verse 30, and in verse 31, Jesus is encouraging them to in, in, uh, what's the word I want? improve, uh, increase on their condition. He says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now, a disciple, it means a follower. Not everybody who's born again becomes a genuine follower of God. Everybody who's born again is in Christ. They're saved forever. But there's many, like we'll take Lot for an example. You can go back and read about Lot. His whole life cycle for us is, is in basically chapters 16 through 19 of the book of Genesis. And he really didn't have much to recommend him as a believer. But in fact, I would have guessed he was not a believer by his actions. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, God said he was a believer and that he was a righteous man. God declared him righteous, not on the basis of his works, on the basis of faith, same as you and me. Okay, that's position. His condition was terrible. My goodness. You know why God only sent two angels to, to Sodom? Because he only had to take out four people and he had to drag them out by their hands. Lot went in, a very rich man. He came out with nothing. He got dragged out. His condition was terrible. 
Samson. His position in Christ was perfect. His condition, well, it was up and down and all over the place and finally ended up physically blinded and working for his enemies. Believers today can be spiritually blinded and working for the enemy. Does that mean their position has changed? No. It means their condition is bad. So we need to talk about the difference between position and condition, and that's what Jesus is talking about this morning. We're called to continue in his word, press on to maturity, following him as dear children. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. As we watch little children imitating their mom or their dad, we, we, we like that. See, look, look, he's doing, he's trying to be like his dad. He's, she's trying to be like her mom. Okay, why? Well, because that's what little children do. And God says we're supposed to do that with him, that we're supposed to follow him in that, mean, in that way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says that we're to desire, as newborn babes, to desire the sincere milk of the word, that we may grow thereby. Most newborn babies really desire their mother's milk. Most of them will nurse actively. Uh, our eldest was born preemie, and we had to keep him awake to keep him nursing. And there came a point where he'd eaten enough that he was going to go to sleep. So I would get off his, old, his outer clothing so he's a little bit cold, and then pat the bottoms of his little feet to keep him awake while Ann pumped a little bottle of milk for him. And then we had to keep on wiggling that in his mouth to keep him working at it until he got that down. But the result was, within a few weeks, he was very eagerly going after food. He doubled his birth weight in, weight in seven weeks. He kind of looked like the Michelin man, actually. Uh, he got to be a pretty healthy little kid, and Anna would have to cut him off saying, okay, Buster, you've had enough. Uh, he'd go at it for 45 minutes. He wasn't going to quit. <clears throat> That's healthy for a believer. Get so you've got a, 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 you feel famished for God's word. You want his word all the time. George told me a while back, he says, you know, I used to not be able to read the Bible. I didn't like reading the Bible. Now I can't get enough of it. Holy mackerel. Praise God. See, that is the change that God's word will produce in your life if you will pursue his word and allow it to change you. It'll produce that kind of hunger. So you're not feeling like, well, I guess I better go read the Bible. Chet said I should. Forget what Chet says. Jesus says, you are my disciples if you continue in my word. You continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. That's how we learn to follow him. See, being born again doesn't guarantee you're going to follow Jesus. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a disciple. That's what a follower of Jesus is called. And we are called to follow Jesus. We're called to be obedient to his word. We're called to feed on his word. That's why it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, they may grow thereby. We're called to continue in his word, to press on to maturity. We're supposed to be following him. We need to become the mature believers that he calls us to become so that we can teach others. We can function as ambassadors and shine as lights in this dark world. I don't know if you ever noticed, but when the U.S. government starts appointing ambassadors, they don't, in, they, they don't appoint two-year-olds. Why not? Well, because most two-year-olds, they can walk pretty good, but they can't talk worth beans, and they don't make sense when they do talk. You know, they, they see things through the eyes of a two-year-old, and sorry, that's not what we want for ambassadors. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors of Christ. If you don't grow into your relationship with Jesus, then you're not going to be functioning very well as ambassadors. So what happened to those people in verse 30 when it says, 
as he spoke these words, many believed on him. Well, back in John chapter 1, verse 12, we see that he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Really. So when you believe on his name, you get to step into your position as a child of God. Uh, two chapters later, in John chapter 3, verse 3, he told uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He couldn't understand. How can that be? So Jesus chose an in interesting way to explain it. Now, those of you who've been on Wednesday nights in the Bible study, we've been going through the book of Numbers. And we just went through Numbers chapter 21, where the children of Israel had rebelled against God, and God sent thousands of migrating vipers through their path of migration so that the two intersected and the, a lot of people got bit and a lot of people died. But thousands of people died from snake bite. That's really a nasty way to die, by the way. <clears throat> and they, asked, they recognized they had sinned. They recognized that the snakes were a judgment from God. And they asked Moses to ask God to take away the snakes. And that's not exactly what he did. God told Moses to make a brass or bronze model snake and hang it up on a pole high enough they could see it from any place in the camp. And what his promise was, if any man is bitten, if he'll look to that serpent on the pole, he will not die, shall not die. All right? That's actually a very good picture of the reality because the reality is every single person in the, in the world, in the history of the world, was snake bit back in the Garden of Eden when the serpent managed to get Adam to sin, all of us died of snake bite. We all became sinners. When these people looked to that brass snake on the pole, they did not get rid of the holes in their leg. They didn't get rid of the pain in their leg or the swelling in their foot or whatever. They didn't die. When I received Jesus as my Savior, I didn't get rid of my old sin nature. It's still a pain. It still bugs me. It bothered Apostle Paul, too, if you want to read about it. Look in Romans chapter 7. He had a terrible time with it. You see, the snake bite's still there, but you're not going to die. You have eternal life. You have eternal life. So that's my position. My condition depends on what I do with his word from there on. <clears throat> These people that had placed their trust in him were eternally lifted up from their original destination, which was the lake of fire, and they were permanently made children of God. <clears throat> When you trusted in Christ as your Savior, you were permanently placed into the body of Christ. How you function there is going to depend on what you do with his word, what you do with your walk with Jesus. See, this is position versus condition. The position of those believers that changed forever the moment they placed their trust in him as their Messiah. They're permanently saved just like the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross didn't get to do anything, go you know, be a missionary. He didn't get to serve in any way. He was already being executed for his sins. The moment he placed his trust in Jesus, Jesus promised him, right then, today, you'll be with me in paradise. No, mm, provided you can hang on the rest of your agonizing death without cursing anymore. No, no, no ifs, ands, or buts. He said, today, you shall be with me in paradise. And that's how we get into, because Jesus says so. Amen.
You see, throughout, let's say, Keisha's pregnancy, throughout any woman's pregnancy, all of her friends and family and extended friends and family are all concerned for the mother and child's health and a safe delivery. That's our focus throughout that time. From the moment of the child's birth, our focus begins to change. Right then, we're thinking, mom and baby, you're okay? How much, how much did you weigh? How much hair did you have? Can we see a picture? You know, can you bring her to church, for goodness sake? You know, you see, but from there on, our focus changes. Our focus changes. Now, I want to see her, ooh, she's growing. I can tell the difference since last week. Ooh, she's starting to talk. Ooh, she's starting to walk. You know, I watched when Juby first came here. She could barely walk. She'd hang on to things and toddle around the room hanging on to pews. Now she runs all over the place. She used to scowl at me every time she saw me. Now she smiles once in a while. See? So we're watching. Our focus has changed. We're seeing the condition change as the child grows. Guess what? That's what we're supposed to be doing too. Not supposed to be looking back all the time and say, yep, I was born, you know, whatever date, you know. No, I don't, I don't even know the date I was reborn. All I know is in early spring of 1973, okay? Because I didn't know how you were saved, so I didn't know for a fact I was saved until about two years later when somebody re-explained the gospel to me, and I realized, oh, well, that happened back here, Okay? I've known two or three people that didn't know for sure when they were born. And one of them, in fact, you've met, uh, Mike Hoff. It wasn't until he went in the, was it Navy end? Or military, anyway. They had to make him a new a birth certificate because, first place, he was born in a barn. The attending physician was dead. The attending midwife was so old, she was completely senile. Nobody could make any sense of anything she said. And there were no records because the local... Uh, township, town hall, whatever, had burned down years before. He didn't know for sure what day he was born. He knew he was of age, so he could join the military, but he couldn't prove it. So they had to investigate and create for him a, quote, birth certificate. He doesn't know if it's right or not. But you know what? Nobody has ever questioned whether he was a human being. Because having a birth certificate is not how you become a human being. Sorry. Knowing when you were born again is not how you become a believer. The day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you were born again, whether you knew it or not. That day you received the Holy Spirit indwelling you, whether you knew it or not. That day you were placed into the body of Christ permanently, whether you knew it or not. That is position. What about condition? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he's talking to the believers only. <clears throat> he was refocusing their attention on the next step, becoming disciples. Their position in his family was secure forever from that moment forward. But in order to see and understand that security, they needed to begin feeding on the word and walking in the word and growing in the word because that would change their condition. They would grow into a knowledge of Christ that was more and more full. Then they could know freedom from fear and the entangling sins that once tormented them. See, because the very next verse says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. <clears throat> your position in Christ is secure forever from the moment you trust him as your Savior. But he's wanted you to move on from that. And he says that the result, in verse 32, is that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, I've read that verse over and over for 50-odd years, and I always misunderstood it, always. Because I read that word know, thinking know as a fact. Remember we talked 
last week or the week before about the difference between Gnosko knowledge, which is an experiential, relational, ongoing knowledge that you grow into, and oida, which is a know something as a fact. Okay, you know about something. And Jesus said that the, the Pharisees didn't know anything about God. And because they didn't know anything about the Father, they didn't know anything about the Son. He says, if you knew anything about my Father, you'd know me. And they didn't. And I always assumed that this was just knowing some particular fact, the truth of God's word, say, and that that truth would make me free. In a sense, that's so. But the, the word he used here is gnosko. It means an experiential, ongoing, growing knowledge, a personal knowledge. He's not just saying know about this. He's saying that they could know him. How do I know? Drop your eye down to verse 36. What's it say there? He says, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He just got done saying, the truth shall make you free. Now he says, the Son, the Son of God, shall make you free. Does that maybe tie into John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He's asking them to get to know him on an experiential, personal, day-by-day, growing relational level. How do you do that? How can we relationally know Jesus well enough to be free? Well, the Christian experience is called walking for several reasons, but the primary one is because there's no coasting. There's no gliding. You can't, you know, get on a skateboard and balance and scoot on down the road as long as it's downhill. You, you can't ski. You, there's, there's nothing you can, if you stop functioning, you stop walking. That's, that's the end of the story. We have to march along one step at a time every day in order to walk with Jesus. And sometimes it may feel like we're just plotting or just going through the motions because it's not always fun. It's not always easy. It's not always exciting. <clears throat> but that's what we're told to do. Now, the people that use this word wrong, uh, both believers and unbelievers use it wrong. I use it wrong because I thought it was meant if you knew these facts, you'd be free. Free from the penalty of sin, you'd go to heaven. Okay, fine. But that, even that's not quite true because knowing those facts doesn't save you. Believing in, the, in the, Jesus' promise is what saves you. Jesus made a promise. You either place your trust in that promise or you don't. The thief on the cross didn't know very many facts, folks. He knew that Jesus was his only hope, and he placed his hope in Jesus, period. The woman that was brought to him recognized him as the judge, placed her faith in him, and he became her savior. And we can go through countless examples like that. So it's not knowing the facts. But the unbelievers use the same verse. I've had them tell me, yes, I do know the truth and I am free. Because I know the truth that the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales. And, and so I'm free from the slavery to your mythical God. So that's how the unbelieving world sees that verse. Both are wrong. Because he is inviting us to have an, an ongoing, growing, personal, experiential knowledge of him. How do we get there? Well, we get there by walking with him. And it's sometimes tough because we're constantly under attack. Most of our enemies are invisible, not all of them. But the angelic host, Satan himself, we never get to see them. So we don't see an attack coming. We see the results. And it's, that's going to be part of the Christian life. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been given unto you in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on the name of the Son of God, but also to suffer for his sake. That's part of the normal Christian life. 
Now, I find it interesting that the world does not attack the cults in the world. It doesn't care about them. You ever notice that? It doesn't attack myths. You never hear any people putting out big diatribes against the Easter Bunny or against Santa Claus. They don't care about that. They care about Jesus. Why? Because he's the light of the world and they don't like the light. They want darkness. It attacks the gospel and the person of Christ because the gospel is true. And the Jesus Christ that we serve, not a mythological Jesus Christ, but the real one, the one that's in the Bible, the Jesus that we serve is not only our Savior, he's also the judge of the whole earth. And they hate that. They've hated him down through time and they hate us along with him. Nobody's attacking Islam as a rule. Why? Because they're scared to. Some of you are old enough to remember a guy named Salman Rushdie. 33 years ago, he wrote a book called, it was a satire, it was a kind of a comedy, uh, mocking Muhammad. Not a good idea. They put out what's called a fatwa on him, which is effectively they called for a hit on him. They put out a contract on him. They renewed it three times. The most recent was in 2019, so just three years ago. And I think it was the day before yesterday, maybe the day before that, the 77-year-old Salman Rushdie was attacked by a 23-year-old young Islamic man with a knife who stabbed him over and over and over. He's going to lose an eye. He almost died. He may still die. He's been stabbed in the liver and a bunch of internal organs. Just pure grace that he didn't get stabbed in the heart and die on the spot. Uh, because that guy was answering what his religion called for if you say something bad about Muhammad. Anybody here ever heard somebody use Jesus as a swear word? I'll bet you there's nobody that hasn't heard it. Maybe some little kids haven't. See, the, the world doesn't attack Islam. They don't, they don't attack the Hare Krishnas. They don't attack uh, the various gurus and swamis that have come to the United States over the last 40 years to get rich by fooling stupid Americans. You know, the Bhagawan Sri Rajneesh finally kind of got run out of the country because he broke a bunch of laws. But the, the uh, Guru Maharaji, this 15-year-old fat kid from uh, India that claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus, basically. He didn't quite say so, but basically that's what he was saying. He called himself the perfect master uh, back in the early 70s. You know, the world didn't care. You know, you going to go follow him? Go ahead and follow him. They didn't care. They didn't care about Jim Jones until he killed 900 people. You see, they care about the truth of the gospel. They care about the person of Christ because he is the truth, because he is the light of the world. And as Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the condemnation that light came into the world and the world loves darkness rather than light because its deeds are evil. See, all those other things from the Hare Krishnas to whoever, they're part of that comfortable darkness of the world, and the world smiles at that. You need to understand that walking with Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. And we're called to walk by faith. We're also told that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's talking to believers. That's not talking to an unbeliever as to how to become a child of God. That's talking to a believer as to how to maintain fellowship with God. And when we get out of fellowship, the first John 1 9 is not how you get saved, that's how you get back in fellowship. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not to unbelievers, that's to believers. That's God telling us how to stay in fellowship and how to get back in fellowship when when we're in sin. 
And that's pretty important, by the way. I remember a friend in Bible school told me he never knew that verse. And so he thought every time he was in sin, he had lost his salvation. And when somebody shared with him the meaning of 1 John 1, 9, he says, Chad, it was just like getting saved over again because I, I finally realized that I was secure in Christ and that I could have fellowship with him and that when I found myself in sin, I could restore fellowship by going to him in faith by confession. And see, we're, we're, we're called to walk with Jesus. And as we do so persistently, that means keeping on, keeping on, getting up every time the world has tripped us or dragged us down, we keep on getting up and walking again. That's how you get to know Jesus. The longer you spend with him personally, walking with him, reading his word, believing his word, obeying his word, praying, confessing, that's how you get to know Jesus and getting to know that truth. You remember that this is the Gnosko knowledge. It's an experiential, experiential personal, uh, growing knowledge of Jesus, the truth. As you get to know Jesus, then he does start to set us free from the baggage of our old sin. And we're getting set free from the twin yapping dogs of self-condemnation and doubt. The, the guilt that we constantly accuse ourselves with that isn't even valid anymore. You know, I still remember things from over 50 years ago where I offended somebody or I said something stupid or I said something ugly, did something wrong, and start grieving over those. And you know what? God forgave me those things a long time ago. But my old sin nature and Satan are going to keep on bringing stuff back and keep on trying to make me fall. The world will call me a hypocrite anytime I sin. I don't know if you remember or not, but when Juvie was walking around here just learning to walk, the time she fell, not one person yelled hypocrite at her. Why? Because we knew she was learning to walk. And when she failed, it's because babies fail when they're learning to walk. We had a neighbor, uh, his name was Robbie, who wanted to be a professional skateboarder. I, I can't roll my eyes far enough about that one, but that's what he wanted. And so every evening, I'd hear him over there. <laughs> as he's skating down this little slope of concrete, and invariably he's trying to jump or something, and it didn't work. But he kept it up and kept it up and kept it up. And you know what? I never yelled hypocrite at him. Why? Because skateboarding is not normal. It takes a lot of practice. It's hard to do, and it's dangerous. You can break arms and legs and fingers and toes and whatnot trying to skateboard. If I so much as get on one, I'm taking my life in my hands, let alone try to make it go anywhere. So the Christian life is not normal. Walking with Jesus is not normal. You're going to fail. And failing when you're trying to walk with Jesus is not hypocrisy pretending that you're walking with Jesus when you don't even know him, that's hypocrisy. That's why Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. <clears throat> and see, the believers there, the people that had just become believers in verse 30, they'd been watching the scribes and Pharisees their whole life. And now they're watching and listening to Jesus and realizing he's actually doing something with his message. His ministry actually gives something. He's actually healing people. They weren't. He's telling us how to walk with God. They weren't. They said they were. But what they actually did is load the people down with heavier and heavier burdens and wouldn't do it themselves at all. They weren't about to try to walk that way. And, and Jesus accused them of that in Matthew. He says, these people, they load people with grievous burdens that are, that are impossible to bear, and they won't move it with their own finger at all. I wrote down the 
I wrote down that reference, but I don't see it here. It's in Matthew. Uh, at any rate, the, the people could see that difference. And because they saw that difference, they chose to believe in Jesus. They placed their faith in, in him instead of what the scribes and Pharisees have been telling them. <clears throat> this isn't a self-help scheme. This isn't telling us some things that we can do to make ourselves holy, to make ourselves wise, to make ourselves whatever, more effective. It's not a, who's that guy, Stephen Covey something, Covey maybe, the, you know, seven habits of successful people or all these things, all these self-help books. There's tons of them on the market. This is not one of them. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not self-help. It's turning yourself over to him to allow him to do it. Walking with Jesus demands that I allow Jesus to do it all. But it also demands I feed on his word so I know how to get out of his way and let him do it all. Because if I don't do that, I can't do anything. <clears throat> I can't see the enemies that are against me. I can't even see the path before me except by the light of his word. I'm in an invisible maze that I'm stumbling through life apart from his word and apart from his Holy Spirit. So apart from him, that's actually true. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's exactly what he meant. It's exactly what he said. We can't choose to become wise. We can choose to feed on God's word and let him make us wise. When we choose to walk with Jesus, we begin to discover what he has chosen for us to do. We start discovering our gifts. We start discovering what he's really intended for our lives. And then we discover the joy of being part of his work in the fellowship of the gospel, sharing the gospel with other people and seeing God's word changing lives. <clears throat> But I want to point out that the promise there in John chapter 8, verse 32, when he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, that is only given to believers. That's not a promise to everybody. The promise to the world is still there. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's to unbelievers. I mean, it gives assurance for us too, but that's an invitation to everybody, whosoever. We see it again in the last chapter of Revelation where he says, whosoever will, let him come. That's the invitation. That's still there for unbelievers. But for us believers, the command is to walk with Jesus, to feed on him, to grow, to become his disciples. We're called to immerse ourselves in his word and to continue in his word so as to become true disciples and so to be set free from our old slavery to sin and fear. An unbeliever can't even receive that. See? They got to start with receiving Jesus as their Savior. They got to start with seeing themselves as a lost sinner without hope and receiving what Jesus is offering for free. But from that point, that's, see, that's when spiritual life begins. From that point, God's focus changes and He says, Walk with me, feed on my word, let me change your life. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we had asked for your grace to be poured out upon us. We ask that you transform our hearts through your word. We ask that you change us into your likeness and allow us to be your representatives, your ambassadors here on earth. 
We want to be your hands and feet and your voice. We want to walk with you closely enough that we do know you as the truth well enough that you start to set us free from our old patterns of life and that we set aside the baggage of the sin that so easily entangles us and drags us away and uh, to stand above the world in the sense that we're free from the the violence of the world we're free from the the doubts and and lies of the world and we're looking to you for all things we ask that you change us by your word and by your holy spirit in jesus name amen